You're listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org, or follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. I'm Nick Tony, your host, and today I'm joined by Ron Kirkwood, who is the author of the brand new book. I think it's brand new. We're mm-hmm. pretty close In to June. it. Uh, Too Much for Human Endurance, The George Spengler Farm, Hospitals, and the Battle of Gettysburg. Ron, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Nick. Uh, we were just talking uh, briefly before we uh, started recording about this book and what's so cool about it. Um, obviously, on this pet podcast alone, we've talked about Gettysburg. We did a, we did a large podcast about the battle. Um, but historians are finding new ways to look at the battle, and that's exactly what Ron's done by talking about a piece of land and using that land to then explore the battle, not just the battle, but real human stories. Um, before we sort of get into bigger ideas and stuff like that, which we'll talk plenty about, can you start by telling us about the Spangler family? Um, I, when I read about him, I sort of thought, the 19th century of the American dream they're living. Uh, can you tell us about them? You're right. They were they were living on a thriving, prosperous farm in 1863. It was mom and dad, George and Elizabeth, and they had four kids ages 21 to 14. George and Elizabeth bought 80 acres there in 1848. And by the time of the battle in 1863, they had crops, they had livestock, they had the four kids. Uh, the farm was doing great. They were in great shape. Um, they built buildings, they built the barn, they built the house, they built the smokehouse, they built the summer kitchen. They had lots of relatives in the area. And then on July 1st, the Civil War landed on their on their farm and it all changed. And they endured, uh, I mean, I think you immediately think that this was a really hell on earth, uh, but they didn't endure it just for three days. It was a much longer experience for them. Um, they're, they're interesting because of this constant growth that, like you said, they started with a few 18 acres. And 80 acres. 80 acres, and then it, by the time of the battle, it was how 166. 166. Mm-hmm. So the location of their farm is, it might not have meant a whole lot before the battle, but, uh, <laughs> and I printed out a, a, a map. If you picture the Union line, and most of the listeners will know the famous fish hook. The fish hook. Mm-hmm. There, the farm is sort of behind the fish hook, right in the middle of everything. So uh, from any spot in the Union line, from the Spangler farm, you could get there in a matter of minutes almost. And that is why that farm was so big. And like you said, it was close to the left flank. It was close to the center of the line. It was close to the right flank. It had 166 acres, like you said, And the Army of the Potomac commanders saw this right away. This was a farm where they could store a lot of infantry in reserve and a lot of artillery in reserve. And on a moment's notice, they could get these guys to the line, often just to to plug a hole in the line, often just in time. And that's what they did. And so logistically, and it had two roads going through it. It had Granite Schoolhouse Lane. It had Blacksmith Shop Road. Those roads led directly to the battlefront, directly to the front. 
So uh, they had everything they needed there. They had the size to hold these guys in reserve. They had the proximity and they had the roads. Yeah, and 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 they also had the resources too that uh, uh, the the Spanglers uh, kept livestock, uh, cattle, I believe, and, and pigs and uh, the crops. And um, I think Spang- it might have been Spangler's own words who said it only took one day for that all yes. to. And he never saw his animals, his livestock taken. He just saw their hides. Yeah. On the ground. Right. And the Spanglers, by the way, if we can go back to them for a second, the 11th Corps medical staff rode up their lane on the afternoon of July 1st and said, you're going to have to leave because your house, your barn, and everything on it is needed for this hospital. And somehow they bartered with them. I don't know. They begged. I don't know what they did. But they were allowed to stay in their house. The compromise was all six of them had to stay in one upstairs bedroom by themselves out of the way. So just to leave their house, they had to walk over and pass dead or dying or wounded guys, blood and filth all over the place. But um, we don't have many reports of this, but um, it's it's believed, it's thought that they helped at the farm. They helped in any way they could. They helped at the hospital because it, it was their moral duty. But that's what they lived with for all five weeks and two days at their farm. Was, and was I'm sure hospital. it wouldn't have been tolerated if they were anything but cooperative and they would have been made to leave. So right. they, so a family of six, four kids, they're ranging from 14 to 21, I believe. Correct. And they're all staying in one room. And imagine, you know, an attic. It's hot. It's, it's hot. humid. And there's no screens on the windows to keep the flies out. And, and there's probably a chamber pot in the bedroom in addition to the outhouse outside. And if you're a fly, this is where mm. you want to be. I mean, you've got all these dying men and and, and horses, and uh, it really the uh, you know almost should put a, a warning before this podcast because we're mm-hmm. going to get into some really grisly stuff, um, which I think is important to sort of get to what this war is. What is. Yeah, yeah, this is what happened. Um, so. Um, July this this ends up being the Spangler farm is is taken by the 11th Corps to be a hospital. Uh that happens on July 1st, correct? Correct. Um what are some of the obstacles that um that are faced by the Union army in treating the wounded on okay. day 1? Their obstacles were mainly self-inflicted. Um Generals Hancock and Generals Meade, which at the time was was good thinking, they wanted to keep all of the roads into Gettysburg open, and that allowed for faster military movement for the troops. So to let that happen, they banned all of the medical wagons 20, 20 miles away from Gettysburg, except for any wagons that carried equipment essential for operations and amputations. They were allowed in. But then, after the, the men had the operation or after they had the amputation, there was no bed for them. There was no hospital clothing. There wasn't much in the way of padding or anything like that. There were no tents. The tents were all banned till after the battle. So by July 3rd, the barn was full of 500 men shoulder to shoulder. And so the men were being just placed in the open fields. There were no tents. And then on July 4th, the famous Gettysburg thunderstorms hit. Again, these guys are just lying in the field and, and they're almost buried. And they're almost drowning in this mud because none of these supplies were there. Finally, later on the 4th, tents started to arrive, and the equipment started to arrive, but it wasn't enough. 
Then you had the U.S. Christian Commission, which is a private organization, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, which is another private organization. They started stepping in. And by about the 7th or 8th, and then the train started to get, come into town again. Then they got their supplies a few days after the battle. But those first four days, those guys must have been in agony. On top of On top of their horrible wounds that they were battling, they were battling the conditions because they were out in that. Yeah, um, so uh, like I said, you paint some really vivid and horrifying pictures of what it was like at the Spengler Hospital um, in July and then in, in, into August of 1863. Um, one of the treatments um, that was prominent in, and are, are amputations. And... Um, you go into detail about those amputations. First, if you could explain why there were so many. I know it's like Civil War 101, but mm-hmm. I think it, it bears repeating why there were so many amputations. It wasn't needless. It was no. It was something that was done because it w- gave you your best chance of survival. If you got an infection, they didn't have the antibiotics then. They got them not long after, I think 10 years later, so they got it. But anyway, they didn't have the antibiotics, so you were going to get an infection if you got a wound or if you had an amputation. And if you didn't get that if you didn't get that limb off within forty eight hours, that infection is gonna spread and it could do even worse damage. If you got a compound fracture in your arm or your leg or wherever where the bone is split, you needed to get that off too because that could cause all sorts of bad things, blood poisoning and everything. So they cut off the part of the body that was so seriously damaged that could kill you later. And it off, they often did kill you later. So, you know, for their times, that was the best thing to do. The, they didn't always do it. They just felt like they did it when they had right, right. had to do it. And there were a few examples in the book where they said, you know, maybe we don't need to amputate. And then a day later, it's gangrenous and yes. th- that person dies. And the other thing, I mentioned that they had those 500 guys stuffed into the barn. And you mentioned gangrene. Well, they're almost shoulder to shoulder, and that's going to spread all of these infectious diseases, too. It's going to spread gangrene, and it's going to spread typhoid fever. And so guys were dying in the barn, not of the wound that they suffered on the battlefield, but of the infectious disease that they got in the barn. Or a doctor, after doing an amputation, might have all these germs on his hand, and he doesn't clean his hands, and he puts his hands with some sort of disease on them in another patient, and then the patient gets that. Right, right. So it just was an ongoing circle. Yeah, I was busy, of course, Googling images of the barn. <laughs> I've been to Gettysburg many times. Unfortunately, I've never been to the Spangler Farm. Uh, that will change now that uh, I've read the book. and, and Maybe um, next so, year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a big barn. Uh, um, you know, by 19th century standards, I think even by It's standards, a huge it's, barn. It's, it's huge. And um, there are men literally lying on the floor, uh, shoulder to shoulder, like you said, and these amputations are taking place underneath an overhang of the barn. Exactly. Right? Uh, and outside. Outside. Um, and just picture this isn't just a hospital, too. I mean, you've got men that are stationed there ready to go to the front at some point. So this is, these are living quarters at this point and uh, um, pretty uh, unsanitary ones. We'll get a little bit more into that, I, I think, when we talk about aftermath. But so an amputation station was three individuals right there was an Correct. operator and there was somebody who administered the chloroform 
which mm-hmm. I was happy to hear most of these men had at, at Gettysburg. And most most surgeries in the Civil War actually did involve something. No, 95%. 95%. It was a revolutionary war that it was so brutal. Right, right. Uh, and then there was some sort of aide who literally held the held person down. down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to get too graphic, but I again, I think it I think it's important to know, but th- there were... Um, the, the skin was basically cut with one instrument, and then muscles were removed or, or pushed one, out of the way. One smaller knife was used to cut down to the bone. It would be a swipe. Say if you were doing an amputation beneath the elbow, there would be one swipe um, down to the bone, kind of a half circle, then one side of the arm. Then they go to the other side of the arm, and they do a swipe half circle down to the bone on that side. And the tissue, the muscle, is pulled out of the way. And then uh, hacksaw type. And then one or two sweeps of the hacksaw and the arm is off. And the reason that they did that and didn't just do the hacksaw is the hacks, the bone saw is the actual name of it. Mm-hmm. They did Because the bone saw had more rugged teeth and a smaller knife could save some of the tissue. Right, right. A- and you said in the book... Uh three swipes was a, a good surgeon could get it off in three swipes mm-hmm. and then they're dealing with making sure that there wasn't bleeding after that and tying that off took our a arteries while. which um arteries and, and veins correct. right right um yeah. and uh you could this could all happen in a matter of five to 15 minutes yes and then they expected after an operation like that for an infection to set in and it would create what they called laudable pus they thought that was good but after everyone they got these infections so they left the wound open the amputation spot open for all of this pus to drain. <laughs> wow, it's hard to believe. Um, so, uh, and another great thing, you get into the statistics here, The basically the higher up on a limb that you had the amputation, the less of your chance of surviving. So if you had a finger removed or mm-hmm. even a hand, you know, you had a ni- something, you had a pretty good chance of surviving, but the mm-hmm. higher up you went, uh, right. the less the chance. And, and the, the worst amputation you wanted was sort of your entire leg removed at the Especially, hip. Especially yeah, way up high, right by the hip. Right, mm-hmm. right. Same with the arm up by the shoulder. That was just more tissue and more bones, bigger bones that you're dealing with there. Right. Um, so, and it's remarkable to say all this after what really was a, an impressive improvement on the medical department in the Union Army before this, which you get into a little bit in, in the book, uh, Dr. Jonathan Letterman had instituted a number of improvements. Um, he think he's brought in in 1862. Can you mm-hmm. talk about some of the things he did to sort of improve? When we look back today at what Jonathan Letterman did, it seems so basic, but it was so important what he did. He one of the first things he did was to order the men to take a bath once a week. They weren't even bathing. Later on in the war, he still wasn't happy, so he ordered them to take two baths a week. So finally they started doing that. Now, um, he thought that the commanders, the officers, were too tough on them physically, that they were, uh, you know, just too many drills. And so he reduced the number of drills that they had. Um, He also instituted more... um, fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, he instituted um, triage. Actually, that was used in the Crimean War a little bit earlier, but it was the first time it was used in the United States was the Civil War. Um, that took place at an aid station right out on the battlefield, and it also took place after the men were delivered to the hospital. If you had a head or a stomach wound in the Civil War, 
they gave you some morphine for pain and put you someplace out of the way to die. Um, if you had a lesser wound, they would put you out of the way too or send you back to your regiment. But if they could save you with an operation, with an amputation, then they got you to the hospital right away. So all of that, all of that came from Letterman. And then one other thing, one of the many other things he did um, was the institution of sinks or latrines. Men previously to Dr. Letterman were going wherever they wanted to go. And of course, you can imagine what kind of mess that would be around a camp. So he had these uh, trenches dug that were a couple of feet wide and maybe eight feet or so deep. And the men were ordered to use that. And after each day, the dirt was piled over it. And that kept the men healthier, too. They were healthier. He believed in healthy a healthy army, you know, was a strong fighting army. The The generals hadn't really come along to that yet. But right. he helped to bring that attitude to the Army of the Potomac. That's remarkable. Mm. Bathe, bathe once a week, change your underwear <laughs> once a week, exercise, uh, you know. Uh, but it was important. Hard to imagine. It was important back then. Yeah. Um, there were a number of notable um, soldiers that were treated at the Spangler Farm Hospitals. Um, uh, Fred, Frederick Stowe is one of them. Uh, you, you use a whole chapter to talk about uh, General Confederate General Louis Armistead. Um, and, and you get into a lot of great firsthand accounts because it's hard to, you know, we don't know. I mean, we know he was shot and he was somewhere near the Union line. He might have even made it over. Um, but can you talk a little bit about uh, Louis Armistead and uh, his treatment at the hospital? The first thing about Louis Armistead that one of the things I like most is that he started Pickett's Charge from the farm of Henry Spangler. That's George Spangler's half-brother. So that's where he spent most of the day before the charge was on Henry's farm. And then he he marched from there, and then he eventually ended up in an ambulance, and he ended up at George Spangler's farm. So one half-brother to the other. I found so many accounts of so many people who saw so many different things. It was their opinion what they saw happen to Armistead. He was shot in the chest. He was shot three times. He was shot two times. He said this. He said this. Um, one of the surgeons who was treating him said he was shot two times. They were non-fatal wounds in the arm and the leg, and he was surprised when he died on July 5th. Another surgeon who was there said he was shot in the chest, too. Um, there's been a lot of debate about that over the generations. Uh, a respected historian in his book, it's his opinion that Armistead had an embolism in his leg, in his wounded leg, and it went up to his lungs and it killed him. You know, I believe in that. I believe that could have happened, but I just can't say 100% today what happened. So my idea was to put out there what everybody said. If somebody today feels that they can, they're smart enough to have an opinion or form an educated opinion on it, then then, then good for them. Because I, I just I just wanted to present what everybody said. It's it's intimidating as somebody who's tried to write history in the past that. Uh, well, I, not into, it's frustrating that somebody might just run away with one account and say that this is what happened to him while you've presented all of these. Yeah, there's something like 10 or 15 yeah, of them. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, some of them written, you know, it, almost in that moment. Some of them written 30 years later uh, that said, no, this is what mm -hmm. happened to him. So, uh, but one thing we do know, he probably died on July 5th. He did. We do okay, know that. We do know that. Okay. And there's a debate on whether or not he died in the Spangler's summer kitchen. You know, they used summer kitchens back then, a separate building. The Spanglers didn't have an actual kitchen in their house. 
I have two or three accounts that said, that said he died in the summer kitchen or the cottage. And the son, Benaya, way later in the 1900s, said he died in the kitchen. So they didn't have a kitchen. So to me, he died in the summer kitchen. So I'm fairly positive that that's where Armistead died. And that's where Stowe was also. Fred Stowe right, right. was in there. So so maybe a place where they put some of the more... Uh, yes. You know, if you're an officer, maybe you... If you're a celebrity. Yeah, right. Um, those two guys were celebrities. Yeah. Um, Armistead, I mean, the people at Spangler didn't know what he had just accomplished. Climbing over the wall, a hat on his sword, saying, follow me, guys. They didn't know any of that. But they knew he was a Confederate general when he pulled up in his ambulance wagon, and they just surrounded yeah. the wagon. They wanted to see this guy. Finally, uh, a doctor, a surgeon broke it up and said, we need to treat this guy. So that's what happened there. Yeah, You know, I learned about summer kitchens because <laughs> I really didn't know. But So no. you wouldn't have a kitchen in your house because of the heat and potential exactly. for fire. So you had yes. a smaller building uh, in a lot of cases. Interesting. Uh, yes. And he might have been buried right outside of the kitchen or maybe another thing that's been debated, which we don't quite know for sure. We've I've read accounts outside the summer kitchen. I've read accounts um, behind the barn, which that doesn't make any sense. Um, the guy in charge of the cemetery there said Armistead was buried in the orchard. That's where the rest of the guys were buried. So, you know, again, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know, sure. but it's a trustworthy account yeah. that he was buried in the orchard. Let's go back to Pickett's Charge and um, the cannonade that preceded it, which is famous. And uh, I think most people know that it really was pretty ineffective in hammering the Union line on Cemetery Hill, but <laughs> but it did get it, it did, did reach the Spangler farm, it did. and it caused quite a bit of chaos. Can you talk about that? And it wasn't just that cannonade, because again, if people can picture the fishhook line, and early in the morning of the third, the Confederates were mainly in charge of Culp's Hill, and that's the extreme right flank of the Union line. So when the Union guys on Powers Hill on Spangler's Land started firing at the Confederates on Culp's Hill, they started firing back and they overshot. And those overshots were landing on Spangler Farm. And the artillery reserve guys that were there, they just got out. One of the guys was injured. I have his account in my book. So they headed out toward the line. It was safer on the line than on Spangler. Um, Overshots... On the pre-Pickett's Charge cannonade, it hit all over on Spangler. Uh, horses and mules were killed. No men were killed from that, although a surgeon, an assistant surgeon who was up on the line, was hit in that cannonade, and he was taken to Spangler, and, and he died there. Um, a lot of damage, a lot of damage on the, from that. Let's now talk about the incredible aftermath of... Well, for no, no, let's it's July 4th, uh, July 5th, the Army of the Potomac leaves Gettysburg, but the hospital remains there and they remain treating men. Um, what 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 happens from July 4th to the time they leave uh, in mid August? Here's what's really bad early on like July 4th and the 5th. That hospital and other hospitals were the most crowded on those two days because of all of the Union guys who were trapped behind Confederate lines. So it wasn't until after the Confederates retreated that, say, 11th Corps ambulances were allowed to go out. And so it was on the 4th and the 5th, those ambulances scoured Gettysburg and brought all those guys back who had been stranded out there. So the 4th and 5th is when the Spangler Hospital peaked at about 1900 
men. The problem was on top of them, all of these guys coming in is that the surgeons were leaving. Uh, the Army of the Potomac had 600 and some surgeons, and they left behind, I think, 100 or 106 when they left town to chase Robert E. Lee on the night of July 5th. So they are inundated, inundated with more men, wounded men than they've ever had, and they have fewer surgeons than they've ever had. So for several days after that, it was bad. They're doing the, these primary surgeries, trying to get to these guys as quickly as they can, because any day that goes by, they have a, a less chance of survival. So that went on for several days, the primary surgeries and the amputations. And, you know, they saved a good amount of men. After that, um, they were feeding them, you know, clothing them, cleaning them, um, trying to keep them comfortable. Um, they were losing men, too, but not as often after that. And then they would do secondary amputations. One guy had his foot amputated early on. Gangrene started to spread, and he had another amputation higher up on his leg, to, you know, to you know, cut it off and save the rest of his body. Uh, he ended up dying, but that's what they did. And there were a lot of citizens that stepped up in this moment, right? I mean, uh, uh, as nurses providing food and, and that sort of thing, which is pretty remarkable. I think this recovery from that battle was powered by the private sector because the Army, the Army of the Potomac had never seen anything like this. The government wasn't ready for 20,000 wounded men left behind in one place. They just didn't have enough of anything. And then the Christian Commission steps in. They bring in donations and food. The Sanitary Commission steps in. They bring in donations and food and clothing, hospital supplies. Um, nurses came in from all over, from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. There was a well-known nurse from there who worked at Spangler the whole time. And these, these are civilian nurses. And these guys are in bad shape in the barn. I mean, they're bleeding they're frightened, they're dying, they're crying, they're vomiting. And these nurses are holding their hands and they're trying to look past all that and they're trying to talk to them, to these boys, um, about their lives, about their families. And they're, they're telling them about their lives and families because the kids are dying and that's, that's how much the nurses were involved. It, they wrote a lot of letters, they held a lot of hands, and I think they helped save a lot of lives lives too. Well, and you include a lot of those letters in the book, which are just heartbreaking. And there's, I forget the, the soldier's name, but he sounds like the nicest guy in the world before the battle. He's worried about his father. Uh, uh, can, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you bring in the crop this fall? And, yeah. you know, if you can, I'll, and then he's wounded and there's a chance that he could survive, but he ultimately dies yeah. at Spangler Farm. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's there's, a lot of those. There's a really, um, I mean, really well-written book in one section in particular that hit me, like, to be a nurse was to know this guy's family and to know his home because they were there, like mm -hmm. you said, every mm -hmm. step of the way. They were. Um, the the aftermath. Um, the, the Army leaves July 5th. Of course, they think that there might be an, another big battle. That that's sort why of, all the surgeons yeah, left with them. Yeah, that's why everybody left. Everybody was ready for another big battle. Um and the the citizens are largely left to, to deal with um, this hospital. And then uh, the final patient leaves August 7th. 7th. 6th. 6th, okay. Right. Um, what's left for the Spenglers? Well, first of all, there's almost nothing left of their property. As we talked earlier, their house, a mess isn't even a good enough word to describe what their house was with um, all those wounded and dying men filling it 
for all those weeks. Then the blood and other body fluids and the smells left behind, somehow they cleaned it up. Their neighbor, Nathaniel Leitner, I wrote this one in the book, the Spanglers owned two-thirds of Powers Hill, and he owned the other third, and he also had a hospital in his home, and when they came back, they couldn't live in it because of all of that. He he went and tried to clean it up years later, but he still couldn't get all everything out of it, and when his wife tried to live there, she couldn't. It just made her ill, so they just gave up and moved away. The Spanglers were able to stay somehow. They rebuilt their barn. Um, I think for the rest of 1863, they lived off the kindness of the Sanitary Commission and the Christian Commission because they stayed in Gettysburg through the end of the year. Um, Gettysburg had train service. They had a good train service. They could have gotten goods off that. There were a lot of farmers in surrounding Adams County in the outer edges of it who weren't impacted at all by this battle, and they had a lot of relatives among those farmers, so they probably came in and helped them too. George said he rebuilt sooner than he expected to be. So I think by the next year, he had all of his crops going. He was a man of means. Um, like I said, when he bought 80 acres in 1848, anytime neighboring land became available, he bought it. So between that, citizens, the train, they, they rebuilt okay. Um, they even added onto their house. They made it one-third bigger sometime in the mid mid-1860s, even though their kids had moved away. Right, right. They still added on to their house. Always so. growing. Yeah, even after the battle. Wow. And in the 1870s, they bought 18 acres next door, a smaller farm, and George and Elizabeth moved onto that one, and their youngest son moved into dad and mom's place and farmed it for the next 10, 15 years or so. And Elizabeth and George lived long lives, right? They both lived to the age of 88, mm -hmm. um, which is remarkable. And like you just said, uh, the youngest son ends up living in the farm, and it stays in the family for quite a while. Till about 1910. 1910. And then there were several different owners until the Gettysburg Foundation bought it in 2008. It was in pretty bad shape. It was in very bad shape. Um, the barn was dilapidated. Most things were dilapidated. Um, the stable wall-to-wall -wall was covered with three feet of manure. Mm. Um, they had to get that cleared out, not just because it was manure, but because it was rotting the vertical posts that were supporting the barn. So they rebuilt it from that stage, and now it's a show place, and now it's open to the public on the weekends in the summer. So And it's beautiful. That barn looks like it did then, and it is beautiful. I think it's artwork. It's yeah, so good. Yeah. Um, a Cincinnati Gazette reporter, Whitelaw Reed, when he came up into Pennsylvania, he called the barns uh, great horse palaces. So yeah. They were so nice. Um, talk about what it takes to write this book. Um, it's, I mean, it's different in, in the sense that um, we're talking about a property and a land, uh, a farm. But then using that farm and that environment to tell a story also about a hospital and a battle, what what gave you the idea and what was it like writing this? I was um, I was a guide. When the foundation got the farm open to the public in 2013, and they needed guides out there. And I was just retiring, and so I thought I'd give it a shot, and I liked it. And three years later, I'm learning more and more all the time, and I'm asking, where's the book? Who did a book on this? I need to read more. I need There's so much more that must have happened. There was no book. Now, the Gettysburg Foundation, with the help of great people like the Adams County Historical Society, Wayne Motts, 
um, they did a lot of research um, after the foundation bought the farm because they wanted to know what all happened there. All of this research, though, was hidden in the foundation offices and notebooks. So I spent the first three to six months of my research going over the research that was already done. And once I got through all that and recorded it, then I did another six months of research, and then I decided it was time to start writing. I made an outline of what each chapter would be, and the outline held through the whole following three years as, as I did the research. And I, I traveled all over the place. My wife, Barb, went with me. We went, we went to Cornell University. We went to Philadelphia. We spent a lot of time in D.C., uh, a lot of time at the War College in Carlisle. They have great books there, and... So much has been written about places like the Peach Orchard or the Trussell House or anything like that. But if you look in a book, you might find a page or a couple of paragraphs that tie into Spangler. And nobody else had connected those dots yet to tie, oh, what happened at the Peach Orchard that's connected Spangler? And when you start trying to connect dots from Spangler and you, you read books about other topics, you can almost bet that Spangler is in there someplace. And so you just take all those. And after three years, you have a book, and it shows how important that farm was. Extremely important because of location, the men that went through there, and just the ability that, you know, you take us from the farm and then take us up to uh, Peterborough, New York, you know, at one mm-hmm. point, you know, talk about some connections there. You learn about the medical stuff. You learn about um, I don't know, just real human stories, and you learn about the brutal aftermath of these battles and water supplies that are tainted. And uh, there's so much more that we could get into. Uh, But one last question, if I could, or just if you could talk about, I think a a common refrain when uh, private citizens' property was damaged during the Civil War was they, they rarely received anything, or if they did, it was a very minimal amount of money. Did the Spanglers get any compensation for what happened to their farm? A direct answer to that question would be yes, but um, more detail needed. They filed three claims totaling about $5,000 to the state and federal governments for everything that was destroyed, crops, everything, walls, fences. They were all torn down. Everything was destroyed. Their barn and their house were still standing, but, you know, they were in a wreck. So they filed $5,000. And the U.S. Quartermaster's office came back and said that it wasn't the Army's fault and that his losses were his misfortune. So they got $90, and we don't even think that they got it, that it probably went to his D.C. attorney. Now, the Lightners next door, who also, like I said, had a hospital on their land, they filed for about $1,000 of damages, and they got 33 But this was a, a common refrain throughout Gettysburg. Like you mentioned, they just, it was war, so the government didn't reimburse them for any of that. Right, right. It was interesting that the government did come back and ask them to purchase small pieces of land, right? And every time they said yes. Every time they said yes. Yes, there are at least three monuments. on. There's two on Powers Hill, at least, and one on Granite Schoolhouse Lane. They came back within 30 or 40 years and asked them if George would sell that land to them, and he said yes each time. Wow, wow. <laughs> Interesting. Um, So with that, I want to thank you so much, Ron, for for, uh, doing this podcast, traveling up to Albany and presenting to the roundtable. The name of the book is Too Much for Human Endurance, which is a great quote in the book that the surgeon doing all these amputations 
just at one point says this is too much for human endurance. Uh, the George Spangler Farm Hospitals in the Battle of Gettysburg, Ronald Kirkwood. Uh, check out the book. And a quick thank you to the Waterville Public Library who allowed us mm-hmm. to set up and do this podcast. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you, Nick. I appreciated it. Thank you.